Welcome and thank you for joining us on Birth Mother Matters in Adoption with Kelly Rourke Scary and me, Ron Rains, where we delve into the issues of adoption from every angle of the adoption triad. Do what's best for your kid and for yourself because if you can't take care of yourself, you're definitely not going to be able to take care of that kid and that's not fair. And I know that my daughter will be well taken care of with them. Don't have an abortion. Give this child a chance. All I could think about was needing to save my son. My name is Kelly Rourke-Scary. I am the executive director, president, and co-founder of Building Arizona Families Adoption Agency, the Donna K. Evans Foundation, and creator of the You Before Me campaign. I have a bachelor's degree in family studies and human development and a master's degree in education with an emphasis in school counseling. I was adopted at the age of three days, born to a teen birth mother, raised in a closed adoption, and reunited with my birth mother in 2007. I have worked in the adoption field for over 15 years. And I'm Ron Raines. I've worked in radio since 1999. I was the co-host of two successful morning shows in Prescott, Arizona. Now I work for my wife, who's an adoption attorney, and I'm able to combine these two great passions and share them on this podcast. On this episode of Birth Mother Matters in Adoption, part two of our three-part series, Two Lives, One Choice. Abortion represents death, finality, and loss. How can the ends ever justify the means when we're talking about a baby? How often have you heard people taking a stand for or against abortion? Both sides of the abortion coin are fiercely defensive of their opinion, justifying their position and rationale. But if we take a step back, to look at both sides' positions and rationales. That will help us clarify and educate ourselves on the opposing side. It is my belief, and and I believe yours too, uh, that the more abortion is understood, the more one understands and accepts that abortion is anti-human, anti-life, and anti-woman, the more people will gravitate away from believing that it should be legalized and more towards understanding that life needs preservation. I agree 100%, obviously, yeah. In preparing for this podcast, I actually spent a lot of time going through article after article after article because I really wanted to dig deeper into the pro-choice side because I believe that by doing that, I could uh, understand where they're coming from. If you don't understand where somebody is on the opposing side, it's really hard to reach them. In other words, if you are on one side of a border and somebody's on the other side and you don't speak the same language, how are you going to communicate? So this this will help the communication to flow and and, and develop an understanding. So in the last 25 years, um, the Guttmacher Institute has conducted two major studies asking women why they chose abortion. Seven percent of women stated they chose abortion because of a health reason or a possible health problem with the baby. And less than a half percent stated that they chose to abort because they became pregnant as a result of rape. 92% of abortions in America are chosen by healthy women to terminate the, the lives of healthy babies. So again, just to clarify, this is just this institute's uh, findings. Mm-hmm. You will find numbers, depending on the study that you're looking at, that will be a little bit different. I mean, they're all in the same ballpark, but they, they may be a little bit different. This to me is astounding absolutely astounding that we have based a law on a very low percentage of what initially people who are pro-choice will say, I'm not pro-abortion, 
I'm pro a woman's right to choose. I'm pro the government not being able to place restrictions or laws on what we're able to do with our bodies. Mm-hmm. In giving that leeway, 92% of abortions are done on healthy women and healthy babies. Right. And it is literally only a matter of choice. It's not because of somebody's health. or. Um, and I also want to go back to the rape argument that you brought up. Um, so we're talking one half of 1%. And invariably, anytime you get into a discussion about re- abortion with somebody, they say, well, what if a woman was raped? And even if you concede that and you say, okay, in cases of rape, there should be legalized abortion, even if you concede that, which personally, I'm I'm really on the fence with that one. But you're still talking about a half of a percent of actual abortions. Can we please just take that off the table? Stop making that your big argument, because if you say, OK, if a woman is raped, she can have an abortion. Nobody else can then does their argument fall apart? No, it doesn't. They still have their argument, but they're just trying to use that as some sort of a straw man argument that isn't really the real issue. I don't even know if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I totally agree. I think that um, I personally still, even when it is a situation of uh, rape, I I still believe that positive can come from negative Mm -hmm. and it's not the child's fault. So um, but we'll talk a little bit about that in, in you know, as we get further into the podcast. But okay. I, I do understand and respect a differing of opinion, you know, regarding a rape situation that is obviously very traumatizing for um, parties involved. And again, no judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that we're talking, like you said, less than a half, half a percent, if the storm team in Arizona got on the news today and said, there is a half a percent. It is going to rain tomorrow. We would not carry an umbrella. Right. So as we examine the philosophies and arguments supported by believers in the right to have abortion legalized, uh, can further educate society as a whole. So what, what they're doing is on, on both sides, on pro-life and pro-choice are using catchy slogans as a marketing tool and in a, like a trigger so that you can remember, you know, what you're trying to promote. So the pro-life side uses, it's a child, not a choice. Uh, Some babies die by chance. No baby should die by choice. And then choice is just another pretty word for murder. On the pro-choice side, uh, the most common ones are, it's a woman's right to choose. It's her body. It's her choice. I am a woman, not a womb. And what I found interesting in the pro-choice versus the pro-life is that the focus on the pro-life side is all about the child being murdered. Like we don't want that child to die. We don't want the child to die. And the pro-choice side is all about women and their right to make a decision. So somebody's decision, somebody's life. I think one far outweighs the other, but... Again, that's just my opinion. Right. Uh, there, there is a belief that women should have a right to choose what happens to their bodies rather than having the government making laws prohibiting them from doing so. This stance falls underneath uh, the feminist viewpoint or belief system that men should not have the right to tell them what to do. I do not think 
that in hindsight, having the Supreme Court be comprised of nine men that ruled on Roe v. Wade did this argument any favors. The other counter argument is that, you know, 50% of unborn babies are little girls. Uh, The unborn baby girl has her own body separate from that of her mother. So by being pro-choice, you're negating 50% of your own argument because 50% of abortions take away the rights of 50% of the female population. Another argument that is often made by the uh, pro-choice camp is women will resort to back alley abortions if abortion is no longer legal and they will die at the hands of butchers. We've heard this for years and years. Mm -hmm. I would say this is a very good example of where the ends don't justify the means. Well, as an example, for instance, murder is illegal. It still happens. People are still doing it. Does that mean we should make murder legal tomorrow so that there won't be illegal murders happening? I Do you see what I'm... I, I don't think it justifies the means. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. And Dr. Bernard Nathanson, the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, admits that he and other abortion industry leaders invented figures to make the claim that thousands of women are dying annually from unsafe abortions. In 1960, uh, Dr. Mary Calderon, a former medical director for Planned Parenthood, estimated that nine out of 10 illegal abortions were actually done by licensed doctors. They're physicians trained as such. Abortion, whether therapeutic or illegal, is in the main no longer dangerous because it is being done well by physicians. So basically, the the back alley hyped, were there back alley abortions? I'm sure. I'm sure there were. Um, were there ones that were awful and horrendous? Absolutely. But was that the majority? It, according to the, the research, it wasn't. Right. You know, research has suggested that other countries demonstrate that restricting abortion does not cause a rise in maternal deaths. Ireland has the lowest maternal mortality rate in the world, according to a study by several agencies at the United Nations, despite its tight abortion restrictions. So in Ireland, it is very, very difficult to get an abortion, and they actually have the lowest maternal mortality rate. So that argument is not supported either factually. Another argument the pro-choice side uses is, what about the young women whose lives will be ruined by an unwanted pregnancy? And, you know, in the olden days, they used to send women off to, you know, maternity homes to have the babies and then place them for adoption. And then they would come home and and nobody would know that they'd had a child. When you look at it, well, when does murder become of convenience become acceptable? You know, if, you know, if you have too many children at home, you know, you don't murder them when they're not convenient. The right to life shouldn't be trumped by the right to be unencumbered. I think additionally, it's, it's incorrect to assume that future and educational career goals must end due to a pregnancy. You know, we have an aftercare program that specifically helps women after they have a baby and place that child for adoption to get back on their feet and get the education they need and help them in their career uh, field. So that's just, you know, that's something to look at as well. And like you had said earlier, you know, what about rape? Because that's a central argument that is used by the pro-choice side. And the Supreme Court state of the death penalty is considered cruel and unusual punishment for the perpetrator, for a rapist. And they do not deserve the death penalty. But then why does the child? So that's, that's something to think about. And then uh, some research shows that uh, 15 
to 25% of rape victims elect to abort their baby. The remainder, 75 to 85%, do not. And carry it to term. And so, and they carry term and either choose to place for adoption or choose to focus on remembering that uh, that child is still 50% part of them. And just because they were raped by an, you know, in an unfortunate uh, individual does not mean that they have to co-parent with that person. And again, I am not downplaying rape by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's horrific. I, I absolutely think that it is one of the worst things that can happen. That being said, I don't think adding murder on top of a crime against a woman is going to improve the situation. And I think that as the pro-choice stance really wants to focus on rape, again, we're talking about a very few amount of cases that actually result from rape in abortion. And when we're looking at the life of a child, uh, there was actually some discussion about whether or not I am the result of a rape. My mom had told me at one point, you know, that she had, she had been raped and she, uh, she didn't know if that was the result of um, my conception or not. And she kind of went back and forth. She didn't really want to talk about it. And then she would bring it up and then she would say, no, that wasn't it. And then she would bring it back up and kind of indicate that it was, but then she would say, no, I don't know that it was or not. I don't. Um, but I know that as a person, if for some reason it was, it doesn't change who I am. And I think that's very important and very powerful what you're saying, because just assuming that it was a you were a product of rape, then think of the blessing that you've become to your family, to all the people around you in your circle, to these birth mothers who needed somebody to help them through a difficult situation. And it may even include a rape situation. All these people that you've affected in your life, I think, are blessed by you. And if you were the product of a rape, I don't think that discounts you in any way. As a matter of fact, it makes it almost more of a blessing. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. And unfortunately, with her gone, I don't know that I'll ever know. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess I, in the end, it doesn't even matter. It shouldn't matter. It because, doesn't change. I guess I guess I could I could take the stand of my conception doesn't change who I am. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know, like circumstances of it don't. Um, yeah. It, it, and I think that regardless, speaking for the children that, you know, were conceived out of rape, um, I don't think that that makes them any less than I don't think that it makes um you know, they're not cursed. They're not any, you know, again, they, it's, it's a terrible situation and it's one I wouldn't wish on anybody. But, uh, again, when, when you're thinking about a baby, you know, the baby as a whole, if, if you saw two babies and were presented with them and one of them had been conceived in love and one of them had been conceived in rape by looking at the babies you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And so does that mean it's harder on the mother as she's carrying? Yes. Does that mean that she would need more support and more resources and more services to help her through 
this because this may be a constant reminder and she may not want or be emotionally able to parent that child. And that's okay. And that's where, you know, adoption becomes an incredible blessing because it's an option to where it can be a win for the child and a win for an adoptive family. And, and maybe it's not a win for the birth mother, but two out of three people win in that situation. And again, with the right services and the right support, maybe some of the bad can be changed into good. And I have another question. I mean, you have a background in, in psychology, so you would know the answer to this more than I do. You say it's not, it may not be a win for the birth mother, but with the benefit of hindsight, do you think in 20 years, 30 years from now, she can look back and even look at that child as it grows, whether she raises it or an adoptive family raises it, and see what that child grows into? Don't you think that could be a net benefit for the birth mother as well, psychologically? Yes, I do. I do. I think, you know, some women that are, that I've spoken with our birth mothers will, will tell me the look on, on the face of the adoptive mother when, when I hand her the baby for the first time, or she's in the delivery room and, you know, they're cutting the cord and they're handing her the baby. The look on her face is, is worth everything that I've been through and worth that journey that I've taken to get to this moment. Mm-hmm. And as hard as that nine months may be, and again, it may be really, really tough. It may require a lot of counseling and a lot of therapy to get through that. But at the same time, abortion has a lot of aftermath that isn't easy as well. And the trauma that that could create on top of a rape could be severe long-term. That's more adding insult to injury, if you will. And so... I think that it is is very difficult that, you know, that we are in a very sticky subject where people are saying, well, you know, if you haven't walked in my shoes and you haven't walked in my shoes, I haven't. I may have been in your baby's shoes, um, but I haven't walked in yours. And and then the other question that I get asked because I have four girls is, well, what if this was your daughter? Well, what if this was your daughter? When I'm talking to you on the podcast, I'm not saying anything that I don't preach to my girls and would it be hard? Yeah, it would be incredibly hard, but that's where you get through it together. And that's where you're not alone. And that's where the community steps up. And, you know, we're, if we're not going to say that it's, it's not worthy of a death sentence for the perpetrator, why would it be a death sentence for the baby? So that's, that's kind of the way that I was looking at things. So When you look at Roe v. Wade as a whole, and you look at it in context, I think that as a society, we have taken one court case and reestablished belief systems and morals and values because of what seven men decided, men who have never given birth to a baby, never been pregnant, never had to... um, nurse the baby or, you know, read a pregnancy test for themselves the first time and, and, and giving that decision to somebody or to nine men who have never been in that situation, I think is not really, maybe it wasn't the right audience, you know, the right Supreme court to make those judgment calls. The fact that we haven't really as a, as a continent almost, um, 
revisited this in Supreme Court, you know, trying to effectually overturn Roe v. Wade, I think is incredible. I think that as we learn more and we're educating ourselves and learning more about little ones in the womb, I think that we need to take what we know and do better. They say, when you know better, do better. Well, we know better now than we knew back in 1973. So we need to now do better. And I don't know, what's your thought? Okay, uh, honestly, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you in a weird way. Now, you say that maybe those men weren't the right people to make this choice or this decision because essentially they're men. There was no women on the panel. Right, but I don't, I've never subscribed to the idea that if you are not of a certain gender, a certain race, a certain demographic, you are not allowed to speak on or um, understand a situation. Do you see right. what I'm saying? I do. Um, so I don't like the argument of these men shouldn't make this decision because they're men. I think... That, that As humans, we have the ability to empathize, even if we've never literally walked in someone's shoes. We can understand it and make an informed decision. Do I agree with their decision? No. But I think it's a slippery slope to start saying, well, those men can't make that decision. They're men. What do they know? I Does think for me, per okay, uh, I will retract that. For me personally, I think it would have carried more weight had there been some women on the panel. Present. Okay. Uh, that's a fair yeah. point. It doesn't have to, not that it, I don't think it should have been seven or nine women, but I, I think the fact that it was all only men, men on the panel. Okay. And that's the issue that I have is that it, it is a very sensitive and touchy subject mm -hmm. and it really gives the, the pro-choice side a leg up on their stance. Because when they're saying, you know, our uterus, our choice, you know, that type of thing. Right. They're saying that to men. So I see where you're coming from. Um, and I think that if you, have, if you have a panel of nine women and they are making a decision about whether or not it is, uh, it should become a law that after three children, men should have <clears throat> a vasectomy. And you're only looking at that. And men are like, no, no, we want a right to choose. We want a right to be able to state whether or not, you know, we have this. We are giving you the upper hand to come back by not having any men on the panel. We are stating that, I mean, that's kind of a slam dunk. That's the first argument you have. That's why, you know, when you have an extreme, which nine men mm -hmm. on, a, on a panel is extreme meaning right. no women on it, you're going to combat with an extreme response because again, there's no equity, there's no equality. And so, you know, women, especially in the seventies were protesting, you know, they had just come out of protesting, they're burning their bras, you know, I mean, this is obviously prior, but they're doing all these things to substantiate their rights as a gender and equality was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at it contextually, nine men on a panel telling a woman what she can and cannot do, mm -hmm. I think added insult to injury. When I was having Ava, so number three, mm -hmm. and I was in the middle of delivery, I think it was like right before she crowned, right before she came out, I was saying, ow, I don't remember what was happening, but 
I wasn't screaming at that moment. I was just like, ow, ow, ow. And the nurse is like, that doesn't hurt. And my doctor is a male. And I remember him looking at her and saying, how do you know? And I thought that's the right attitude. Right. You know, because he didn't assume that he knew anything. Right. Like he, he himself didn't say, well, yes, it does. You know, it was, well, how do you know? And to me, that was really powerful because he didn't try to pretend like he knew mm-hmm. or pretend like she was right and she knew because neither of them did. They weren't at that moment with that baby at that position. You know what I mean? And anyway, so I think that by having nine men on a panel, just making a decision that affects both men and women, mm-hmm. but physically affecting only women, it opens you up. I think that's um, a fair argument. And I think that's important for us to do this. This is exactly what I have told my son to do a million times, you know, listen to both sides and try and not just listen, but understand where yes. they're coming from. And maybe we'll and find I some understand common where ground. You're coming from. I do think that men can speak on behalf of women. Mm-hmm. But when you are making a humongous decision and one that solely physically impacts and affects one gender to not have anybody on that panel of that gender, mm-hmm. I think is a misrepresentation. That's a fair point. At least, at least have one or two on there, you know, <laughs> even if they haven't had an abortion or they haven't been pregnant, but it's right. like, uh, that just seems like that gives pro-choice so much power. I understand what you're saying. I still think I disagree, but it's giving me something to ponder. We can disagree. Absolutely. Tune in to Birth Mother Matters and Adoption next time for part three of our three-part series, Two Lives, One Choice, and we'll be discussing the new FX documentary, a.k.a. Jane Roe. If you're listening and dealing with an unplanned pregnancy and want more information about adoption, Building Arizona Families is a local Arizona adoption agency available 24-7 by phone or text at 623-695-4112. That's 623-695-4112. We can make an immediate appointment with you to get started on creating an Arizona adoption plan or just give you more information. You can also find out more information about Building Arizona Families on their website at azpregnancyhelp.com. We also have a website for this podcast at birthmothermatterspodcast.com. Thanks go out to Grapes for allowing us to use their song, I Don't Know, as our theme song. And as always, we thank you for joining us on Birth Mother Matters in Adoption, written and produced by Kelly Rourke Scary and edited by me. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to us. Tune in next time to Birth Mother Matters in Adoption. For Kelly Rourke Scary, I'm Ron Raines.